Hello and welcome to the Mayorzine. If you were or are a Disney fan, chances are the first thing that comes to mind when I say the title of our first story is Mickey Mouse. And you can probably picture him bursting out the window, shouting, Ha ha! I got seven in one blow! It's one of the iconic Mickey Mouse cartoons. I'm talking about, of course, the brave little tailor. Or, as it was originally known, the valiant little tailor. For some reason, Disney loved to adapt the Brothers Grimm probably for the same reason I'm using them for this podcast. The stories are free, they're iconic, and boy are they interesting. The story you may know from the Mickey Mouse cartoon is not, however, the story told by Grim and Grimm. It's naturally a simplified version, using just one giant, and making sure that Mickey Mouse doesn't look like a terrible person. Because, quite simply, the tailor of the original story is a raging jerk face. This one isn't quite as gruesome as the Grimm's usual fare, although if you think too hard about it, it really depends on everyone being very stupid. Also, if you're a Brandon Mull fan, you may notice some similarities with his Legend of the First Dragon Slayer from the Dragon Watch series. I'm not saying it was deliberate, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was inspired by the tailor just a little, even if subconsciously. And if you haven't heard of Brandon Mull, go pick up Fablehaven especially if you have kids in the just preteen age range. It's a really fantastic middle-grade fantasy series, one of my favorites. Anyway, here is The Valiant Little Tailor. The Valiant Little Tailor By the Brother Scrimp One summer's morning, a little tailor was sitting on his table by the window. He was in good spirits, and sewed with all his might. Then came a peasant woman down the street, crying, Good jams, cheap! Good jams, cheap! This rang pleasantly in the tailor's ears. He stretched his delicate head out of the window and called, Come up here, dear woman! Here you will get rid of your goods! The woman came up the three steps to the tailor with her heavy basket, and he made her unpack all the pots for him. He inspected each one, lifted it up, put his nose to it, and at length said, The jam seems to me to be good, so weigh me out four ounces, dear woman, and if it is a quarter of a pound, that is of no consequence. The woman who had hoped to find a good sale gave him what he desired, but went away quite angry and grumbling. Now this jam shall be blessed by God, cried the little tailor, and give me health and strength. So he brought the bread out of the cupboard, cut himself a piece right across the loaf, and spread the jam over it. This won't taste bitter, said he, but I will just finish the jacket before I take a bite. He laid the bread near him, sewed on, and in his joy made bigger and bigger stitches. In the meantime, the smell of the sweet jam rose to where the flies were sitting in great numbers, and they were attracted and descended on it in hosts. Hi, who invited you? said the little tailor, and drove the unbidden guests away. The flies, however, who understood no German, would not be turned away, but came back again in ever-increasing companies. The little tailor at last lost all patience and drew a piece of cloth from the hole under his work table, and saying, Wait and I will give it to you! struck it mercilessly on them. When he drew it away and counted, there lay before him no fewer than seven, dead and with legs stretched out. Are you a fellow of that sort? said he, and he could not help admiring his own bravery. 
the whole town shall know of this. And the little tailor hastened to cut himself a girdle, stitched it, and embroidered on it in large letters, seven at one stroke. What, the town, he continued, the whole world shall hear of it. And his heart wagged with joy like a lamb's tail. The tailor put on the girdle and resolved to go forth into the world because he thought his workshop was too small for his valor. Before he went away, he sought about in the house to see if there was anything which he could take with him. However, he found nothing but an old cheese, and that he put in his pocket. In front of the door he observed the bird which had caught itself in the thicket. It had to go into his pocket with the cheese. Now he took to the road boldly, and as he was light and nimble he felt no fatigue. The road led him up a mountain, and when he had reached the highest point of it, there sat a powerful giant looking peacefully about him. The little tailor went bravely up, spoke to him, and said, Good day, comrade. So you are sitting there overlooking the widespread world. I am just on my way thither, and want to try my luck. Have you any inclination to go with me? The giant looked contemptuously at the tailor, and said, You ragamuffin! You miserable creature! Oh, indeed, answered the little tailor, and unbuttoned his coat and showed the giant the girdle. There may you read what kind of a man I am. The giant read seven at one stroke and thought that they had been men whom the tailor had killed and began to feel a little respect for the tiny fellow. Nevertheless, he wished to try him first and took a stone in his hand and squeezed it together so that water dropped out of it. Do that likewise, said the giant, if you have strength. Is that all, said the tailor. That is child's play with us, and put his hand into his pocket, brought out the soft cheese, and pressed it until the liquid ran out of it. Faith, said he, that was a little better, wasn't it? The giant did not know what to say, and could not believe it of the little man. The giant picked up a stone and threw it so high that the eye could scarcely follow it. Now, little mite of a man, do that likewise. Well thrown, said the tailor. But after all, the stone came down to earth again. I will throw you one which shall never come back at all. And he put his hand into his pocket, took out the bird, and threw it into the air. The bird, delighted with its liberty, rose, flew away, and it did not come back. How does that shot please you, comrade? asked the tailor. You can certainly throw, said the giant. But now we will see if you are able to carry anything properly. He took the little tailor to a mighty oak tree which lay there felled on the ground, and said, If you are strong enough, help me to carry the tree out of the forest. Readily, answered the little man. Take you the trunk on your shoulders, and I will raise up the branches and twigs. After all, they are the heaviest. The giant took the trunk on his shoulder, but the tailor seated himself on a branch, and the giant, who could not look round, had to carry away the whole tree and the little tailor into the bargain. He behind was quite merry and happy, and whistled the song, Three Tailors Rode Forth from the Gate, as if carrying the tree were child's play. The giant, after he had dragged the heavy burden part of the way, could go no further, and cried, Hark you, I shall have to let the tree fall. The tailor sprang nimbly down, seized the tree with both arms as if he had been carrying it, and said to the giant, You are such a great fellow, and yet cannot even carry the tree. They went on together. And as they passed the cherry tree, the giant laid hold of the top of the tree where the ripest fruit was hanging, bent it down, gave it into the tailor's hand, and bade him eat. 
But the little tailor was much too weak to hold the tree, and when the giant let it go, it sprang back again, and the tailor was tossed into the air with it. When he had fallen down again without injury, the giant said, What is this? Have you not strength enough to hold the weak twig? There is no lack of strength, answered the little tailor. Do you think that could be anything to a man who has struck down seven at one blow? I leapt over the tree because the huntsmen are shooting down there in the thicket. Jump as I did if you can do it. The giant made the attempt, but he could not get over the tree and remained hanging in the branches, so that in this also the tailor kept the upper hand. The giant said, If you are such a valiant fellow, come with me into our cavern and spend the night with us. The little tailor was willing and followed him. When they went into the cave, other giants were sitting there by the fire, and each of them had a roasted sheep in his hand and was eating it. The little tailor looked round and thought, It is much more spacious here than in my workshop. The giant showed him a bed and said he was to lie down in it and sleep. The bed, however, was too big for the little tailor. He did not lie down in it, but crept into a corner. When it was midnight and the giant thought that the little tailor was lying in a sound sleep, he got up, took a great iron bar, cut through the bed with one blow, and thought he had finished off the grasshopper for good. With the earliest dawn, the giants went into the forest and had quite forgotten the little tailor, when all at once he walked up to them quite merrily and boldly. The giants were terrified. They were afraid that he would strike them all dead and ran away in a great hurry. The little tailor went onwards, always following his own pointed nose. After he had walked for a long time, he came to the courtyard of a royal palace, and as he felt weary, he lay down on the grass and fell asleep. Whilst he lay there, the people came and inspected him on all sides, and read on his girdle seven at one stroke. Ah, said they, what does the great warrior want here in the midst of peace? He must be a mighty lord. They went and announced him to the king, and gave it as their opinion that if war should break out, this would be a weighty and useful man who ought on no account to be allowed to depart. The council pleased the king and he sent one of his courtiers to the little tailor to offer him military service when he awoke. The ambassador remained standing by the sleeper, waited until he stretched his limbs and opened his eyes, and then conveyed to him this proposal. For this very reason have I come here, the tailor replied. I am ready to enter the king's service. He was therefore honorably received, and a special dwelling was assigned him. The soldiers, however, were set against the little tailor and wished him a thousand miles away. What is to be the end of this? they said among themselves. If we quarrel with him and he strikes about him, seven of us will fall at every blow. Not one of us can stand against him. They came, therefore, to a decision, betook themselves in a body to the king, and begged for their dismissal. We are not prepared, said they, to stay with a man who kills seven at one stroke. The king was sorry that for the sake of one he should lose all his faithful servants, wished that he had never set eyes on the tailor and would willingly have been rid of him again. But he did not venture to give him his dismissal, for he dreaded lest he should strike him and all his people dead and place himself on the royal throne. He thought about it for a long time and at last found good counsel. He sent to the little tailor and caused him to be informed that as he was a great warrior, he had one request to make to him. In a forest of his country lived two giants, who caused great mischief with their robbing, murdering, ravaging, and burning, and no one could approach them without putting himself in danger of death. 
If the tailor conquered and killed these two giants, he would give him his only daughter to wife and half of his kingdom as a dowry. Likewise, one hundred horsemen should go with him to assist him. That would indeed be a fine thing for a man like me, thought the little tailor. One is not offered a beautiful princess and half a kingdom every day of one's life. Oh yes, he replied. I will soon subdue the giants and do not require the help of the hundred horsemen to do it. He who can hit seven with one blow has no need to be afraid of two. The little tailor went forth, and the hundred horsemen followed him. When he came to the outskirts of the forest, he said to his followers, Just stay waiting here. I alone will soon finish off the giants. Then he bounded into the forest and looked about right and left. After a while he perceived both giants. They lay sleeping under a tree and snored so that the branches waved up and down. The little tailor, not idle, gathered two pockets full of stones, and with these climbed up the tree. When he was halfway up, he slipped down by a branch until he sat just above the sleepers and then let one stone after another fall on the breast of one of the giants. For a long time the giant felt nothing, but at last he awoke, pushed his comrade, and said, Why are you knocking me? You must be dreaming, said the other. I am not knocking you. They laid themselves down to sleep again, and then the tailor threw a stone down on the second. What is the meaning of this? cried the other. Why are you pelting me? I am not pelting you, answered the first, growling. They disputed about it for a time, but as they were weary, they let the matter rest, and their eyes closed once more. The little tailor began his game again, picked out the biggest stone, and threw it with all his might on the breast of the first giant. That is too bad, cried he, and sprang up like a madman, and pushed his companion against the tree until it shook. The other paid him back in the same coin, and they got into such a rage that they tore up trees and belabored each other so long that at last they both fell down dead on the ground at the same time. Then the little tailor leapt down. It is a lucky thing, said he, that they did not tear up the tree on which I was sitting, or I should have had to sprint on to another like a squirrel but we tailors are nimble. He drew out his sword and gave each of them a couple of thrusts in the breast, and then went out to the horsemen and said, The work is done. I have finished both of them off, but it was hard work. They tore up trees in their sore need and defended themselves with them, but all that is to no purpose when a man like myself comes who can kill seven at one blow. But are you not wounded? asked the horseman. You need not concern yourself about that, answered the tailor. They have not bent one hair of mine. The horsemen would not believe him and rode into the forest. There they found the giants swimming in their blood, and all round about lay the torn up trees. The little tailor demanded of the king the promised reward. He, however, repented of his promise and again bethought himself how he could get rid of the hero. Before you receive my daughter and the half of my kingdom, he said to him, you must perform one more heroic deed. In the forest roams a unicorn, which does great harm, and you must catch it first. I fear one unicorn still less than two giants. Seven at one blow is my kind of affair. He took a rope and an axe with him, went forth into the forest, and again bade those who were sent with him to wait outside. He had not long to seek. The unicorn soon came towards him and rushed directly on the tailor, as if it would gore him with its horn without more ado. 
Softly, softly, it can't be done as quickly as that, said he, and stood still and waited until the animal was quite close, and then sprang nimbly behind the tree. The unicorn ran against the tree with all its strength, and stuck its horn so fast in the trunk that it had not the strength enough to draw it out again, and thus it was caught. Now I have got the bird, said the tailor, and came out from behind the tree and put the rope round its neck. And then with his axe he hewed the horn out of the tree, and when all was ready, he led the beast away and took it to the king. The king still would not give him the promised reward, and made a third demand. Before the wedding the tailor was to catch him a wild boar that made great havoc in the forest, and the huntsmen should give him their help. Willingly, said the tailor, that is child's play. He did not take the huntsmen with him into the forest, and they were well pleased that he did not, for the wild boar had several times received them in such a manner that they had no inclination to lie in wait for him. When the boar perceived the tailor, it ran on him with foaming mouth and wetted tusks, and was about to throw him to the ground, but the hero fled and sprang into a chapel which was near and up to the window at once, and in one bound out again. The boar ran after him, but the tailor ran round outside and shut the door behind it. And then the raging beast, which was much too heavy and awkward to leap out of the window, was caught. The little tailor called the huntsmen thither, that they might see the prisoner with their own eyes. The hero, however, went to the king, who was now, whether he liked it or not, obliged to keep his promise, and gave his daughter and half of his kingdom. Had he known that it was no warlike hero, but a little tailor who was standing before him, it would have gone to his heart still more than it did. The wedding was held with great magnificence and small joy, and out of a tailor a king was made. After some time, the young queen heard her husband say in his dreams at night, Boy, make me the doublet, and patch the pantaloons, or else I will wrap the yard measure over your ears. Then she discovered in what state of life the young lord had been born and next morning complained of her wrongs to her father, and begged him to help her to get rid of her husband, who was nothing else but a tailor. The king comforted her, and said, Leave your bedroom door open this night, and my servants shall stand outside, and when he has fallen asleep shall go in, bind him, and take him on board a ship which shall carry him into the wide world. The woman was satisfied with this, but the king's armor-bearer, who had heard all, was friendly with the young lord, and informed him of the whole plot. I'll put a screw into that business, said the little tailor. At night he went to bed with his wife at the usual time, and when she thought that he had fallen asleep, she got up, opened the door, and then lay down again. The little tailor, who was only pretending to be asleep, began to cry out in a clear voice, Boy, make me the doublet and patch me the pantaloons, or I will wrap the yard measure over your ears. I smote seven at one blow. I killed two giants. I brought away one unicorn and caught a wild boar. And am I to fear those who are standing outside the room? When these men heard the tailor speaking thus, they were overcome by a great dread and ran as if the wild huntsmen were behind them, and none of them would venture anything further against him. So the little tailor was and remained a king to the end of his life.
Last week on Bear Trap, we met Tom Shandor, a propagandist for the fictional Public Information Bureau, as he started to investigate the life of one David Ingersoll. This week, the investigation heats up. Tom is hot on the trail of something big, something that could potentially change the world. Bear Trap by Alan E. Norse Part 2 The Library of Congress had been moved when the threat of bombing in Washington had become acute. Shandor took a cab to the Georgetown airstrip, checked the fuel in the copter. Ten minutes later, he started the motor and headed upwind into the haze over the hills. In less than half an hour, he settled to the library landing field in western Maryland and strode across to the rear entrance. The electronic cross-index had been the last improvement in the library since the war with China had started in 1958. Shandor found a reading booth in one of the alcoves on the second floor and plugged in the index. The cold, metallic voice of the automatic chirped twice and said, your reference, please. Shandor thought a moment. Give me your newspaper files on David Ingersoll, Secretary of State. Through which dates, please. Start with the earliest reference and carry through to current. The speaker burped, and he sat back, waiting. A small grate in the panel before him popped open, and a small spool plopped out onto a spindle. Another followed, and another. He turned to the reader and reeled the first spool into the intake slot. The light snapped on, and he began reading. Spools continued to plop down. He read for several hours, taking a dozen pages of notes. The references commenced in June 1961, with a small notice that David Ingersoll, Republican from New Jersey, had been nominated to run for state senator. Before that date, nothing. Shandor scowled, searching for some item predating that one. He found nothing. Scratching his head, he continued reading, outlining chronologically. Ingersoll's election to state senate, then to United States Senate. His rise to national prominence as economist for the post-war administrator of President Drayton in 1966. His meteoric rise as a peacemaker in a nation tired from endless dreary years of fighting in China and India. His tremendous popularity as he tried to stall the re-intensifying Cold War with Russia the first Nobel Peace Prize in 1969 for the ill-fated Ingersoll Plan for World Sovereignty. Pages and pages and pages of newsprint. Shandor growled angrily, surveying the pile of notes with a sinking feeling of incredulity. The articles, the writing, the tone, it was all too familiar. Carefully he checked the newspaper sources. Some of the dispatches were Associated Press. Many came direct desk from Public Information Board in New York. Two other networks sponsored some of the wordage, but the tone was all the same. Finally, disgusted, Tom stuffed the notes into his briefcase and flipped down the librarian lever. Sources, please. A light blinked, and in a moment a buzzer sounded at his elbow. A female voice, quite human, spoke as he lifted the receiver. Can I help you on sources? Yes, I've been reading the newspaper files on David Ingersoll. I'd like the bylines on this copy. There was a moment of silence. Which dates, please? Shandor read off his list, giving dates. The silence continued for several minutes as he waited impatiently. 
He was about to hang up and leave when the voice spoke up again. I'm sorry, sir. Most of that material has no byline. Except for one or two items, it's all staff-written. By whom? I'm sorry, no sources available. Perhaps the PIB offices could help you. All right, ring them for me, please. He waited another five minutes, saw the PIB cross-index clerk appear on the video screen. Hello, Mr. Shandor, can I help you? I'm trying to trace down the names of the Associated Press and PIB writers who covered stories on David Ingersoll over a period from June 1961 to the present date. The girl disappeared for several moments. When she reappeared, her face was puzzled. Why, Mr. Shandor, you've been doing the work on Ingersoll from August 1978 to September 1982. We haven't closed the files on this last month yet, he scowled in annoyance. Yes, yes, I know that. I want the writers before I came. The clerk paused. Until you started your work, there was no definite assignment. The information just isn't here. But the man you replaced in PIB was named Frank Mariel. Shandor turned the name over in his mind, decided that it was familiar, but that he couldn't quite place it. What's this man doing now? The girl shrugged. I don't know just now and have no sources, but according to our files, he left Public Information Board to go to work in some capacity for Dartmouth Bearing Corporation. Shandor flipped the switch and settled back in the reading chair. Once again, he fingered through his notes, frowning, a doubt gnawing through his mind into certainty. He took up a dozen of the stories, analyzed them carefully, word for word, sentence by sentence. Then he sat back, his body tired, eyes closed in concentration, an incredible idea twisting and writhing and solidifying in his mind. It takes one to catch one. That was his job, telling lies, writing stories that weren't true and making them believable, making people think one thing when the truth was something else. It wasn't so strange that he could detect exactly the same sort of thing when he ran into it. He thought it through again and again, and every time he came up with the same answer. There was no doubt. Reading the newspaper files had accomplished only one thing. He had spent the afternoon reading a voluminous, neat, smoothly written, extremely convincing batch of bold-faced lies. Lies about David Ingersoll. Somewhere at the bottom of those lies was a shred or two of truth, a shred hard to analyze, impossible to segregate from the garbage surrounding it. But somebody had written the lies. That meant that somebody knew the truths behind them. Suddenly he galvanized into action. The video blinked protestingly at his urgent summons, and the Washington Visiphone operator answered. Somewhere in those listings of yours, Shandor said, you've got a man named Frank Mariel. I want his number. He reached the downtown restaurant half an hour early and it ducked into a nearby Visiphone station to ring heart. The PIB director's chubby face materialized on the screen after a moment's confusion, and Shandor said, John, what are your plans for releasing the Ingersoll story? The morning papers left him with a slight head cold, if I remember right. Try as he would, he couldn't conceal the edge of sarcasm in his voice. Hart scowled. How's the biography coming? The biography's coming along fine. I want to know what kind of quicksand I'm wading through, that's all. Hart shrugged and spread his hands. We can't break the story proper until you're ready with your buffer story. Current plans say that he gets pneumonia tomorrow and goes to Walter Reed tomorrow night. We're giving it as little emphasis as possible, running the Berlin Conference stories for right-hand column stuff. That'll give you all day tomorrow and half the next day for the preliminary stories on his death. Okay? That's not enough time. Shandor's voice was tight. 
It's enough for a buffer release. Hart scowled at him, his round face red and annoyed. Look, Tom, you get that story in, and never mind what you like or don't like. This is dynamite you're playing with. The conference is going to be on the rocks in a matter of hours. That's straight from the undersecretary. And on top of it all, there's trouble down in Arizona. Shandor's eyes widened. The rocket project. Hart's mouth twisted. Sabotage. They picked up a whole ring that's been operating for over a year. Caught them red-handed, but not before they burnt out half a calculator wing. They'll have to move in new machines now before they can go on. Set the project back another week, and that could lose the war for us right there. Now get that story in. He snapped the switch down, leaving Shandor blinking at the darkened screen. Ten minutes later, Anne Ingersoll joined him in the restaurant booth. She was wearing a chic white linen outfit, with her hair fresh like a blonde halo around her head in the fading evening light. Her freshness contrasted painfully with Tom's curling collar and dirty tie, and he suddenly wished he'd picked up a shave. He looked up and grunted when he saw the fat briefcase under the girl's arm, and she dropped it on the table between them and sank down opposite him, studying his face. The reading didn't go so well, she said. The reading went lousy, he admitted sheepishly. This the personal file? She nodded shortly and lit a cigarette. The works. They didn't even bother me. But I can't see why all the precaution. I mean the express and all that. Shandor looked at her sharply. If what you said this morning was true, that file is a gold mine. For us, but more particularly for your father's enemies. I'll go over it closely when I get out of here. Meantime, there are one or two other things I want to talk over with you. She settled herself and grinned. Okay, boss, fire away. He took a deep breath, and tiredness lined his face. First off, what did your father do before he went into politics? Her eyes widened, and she arrested the cigarette halfway to her mouth, put it back on the ashtray, with a puzzled frown on her face. That's funny, she said softly. I thought I knew, but I guess I don't. He was an industrialist. Way far back, years and years ago, when I was just a little brat, and then we got into the war with China, and I don't know what he did. He was always making business trips. I can remember going to the airport with Mother to meet him, but I don't know what he did. Mother always avoided talking about him, and I never got to see him enough to talk. Shandor sat forward, his eyes bright. Did he ever entertain any business friends during that time? Any that you can remember? She shook her head. I can't remember. Seems to me a man or two came home with him on a couple of occasions, but I don't know who. I don't remember much before the night he came home and said he was going to run for Congress. Then there were people galore, have been ever since. And what about his work at the end of the China War? After he was elected, while he was doing all that work to try to smooth things out with Russia. Can you remember him saying anything to you or to your mother about what he was doing and how? She shook her head again. Oh, yes, he'd talk. He and Mother would talk, sometimes argue. I had the feeling that things weren't too well with Mother and my dad many times, but I can't remember anything specific, except that he used to say over and over how he hated the thought of another war. He was afraid it was going to come. Shandor looked up sharply. But he hated it. Yes, her eyes widened. Oh, yes, he hated it. Dad was a good man, Tom. He believed with all his heart that the people of the world wanted peace and that they were being dragged to war because they couldn't find any purpose to keep them from it. 
He believed that if the people of the world had a cause, a purpose, a driving force, that there wouldn't be any more wars. Some men fought him for preaching peace, but he wouldn't be swayed. Especially he hated the pure profit lobbies, the patriotic drum beaters who stood to get rich in a war. But Dad had to die, and there aren't many men like him left now, I guess. I know. Shandor fell silent, stirring his coffee glumly. Tell me, he said, did your father have anything to do with a man named Mariel? Anne's eyes narrowed. Frank Mariel? He was the newspaper man. Yes, Dad had plenty to do with him. He hated Dad's guts because Dad fought his writing so much. Mariel was one of the fight-now-and-get-rich school that were continually plaguing Dad. Would you say that they were enemies? She bit her lip, wrinkling her brow in thought. Not at first. More like a big dog with a little flea at first. Mariel pestered Dad, and Dad tried to scratch him away. But Mariel got into PIB, and then I suppose you could call them enemies. Shandor sat back, frowning, his face dark with fatigue. He stared at the tabletop for a long moment, and when he looked up at the girl, his eyes were troubled. There's something wrong with this, he said softly. I can't quite make it out, but it just doesn't look right. Those newspaper stories I read, pure bourgeois from beginning to end. I'm dead certain of it. And yet... He paused, searching for words. Look, it's like I'm looking at a jigsaw puzzle that looks like it's all completed and lying out on the table, but there's something that tells me I'm being foxed, that it isn't a complete puzzle at all, just an illusion, yet somehow I can't even tell for sure where pieces are missing. The girl leaned over the table, her gray eyes deep with concern. Tom, she said, almost in a whisper. Suppose there is something, Tom. Something big. What's it going to do to you, Tom? You can't fight anything as powerful as PIB, and these men that hated Dad could break you. Tom grinned tiredly, his eyes far away. I know, he said softly, but a man can only swallow so much. Somewhere, I guess, I've still got a conscience. It's a nuisance, but it's still there. He looked closely at the lovely girl across from him. Maybe it's just that I'm tired of being sick of myself. I'd like to like myself for a change. I haven't liked myself for years. He looked straight at her, his voice very small in the still booth. I'd like some other people to like me too. So I've got to keep going. Her hand was in his then, grasping his fingers tightly, and her voice was trembling. I didn't think there was anybody left like that, she said. Tom, you aren't by yourself. Remember that. No matter what happens, I'm with you all the way. I'm... I'm afraid, but I'm with you. He looked up at her then, and his voice was tight. Listen, Anne, your father planned to go to Berlin before he died. What was he going to do if he went to the Berlin conference? She shrugged helplessly. The usual diplomatic falderall, I suppose. He always... No, no, that's not right. He wanted to go so badly that he died when he wasn't allowed to, Anne. He must have had something in mind, something concrete, something tremendous, something that would have changed the picture a great deal. And then she was staring at Shandor, her face white, gray eyes wide. Of course he had something, she exclaimed. He must have, oh, I don't know what, he wouldn't say what was in his mind, but when he came home after that meeting with the president, he was furious. 
I've never seen him so furious, Tom. He was almost out of his mind with anger, and he paced the floor and swore and nearly tore the room apart. He wouldn't speak to anyone, just stamped around and threw things. And then we heard him cry out, and when we got to him, he was unconscious on the floor, and he was dead when the doctor came. She set her glass down with trembling fingers. He had something big, Tom. I'm sure of it. He had some information that he planned to drop on the conference table with such a bang it would stop the whole world cold. He knew something that the conference doesn't know. Tom Shandor stood up, trembling, and took the briefcase. It should be here, he said. If not the whole story, at least the missing pieces. He started for the booth door. Go home, he said. I'm going where I can examine these files without any interference. Then I'll call you. And then he was out the door, shouldering his way through the crowded restaurant, frantically weaving his way to the street. He didn't hear Anne's voice as she called after him to stop, didn't see her stop at the booth door, watch in a confusion of fear and tenderness, and collapse into the booth, sobbing as if her heart would break. Because a crazy, twisted, impossible idea was in his mind. An idea that had plagued him since he had started reading that morning. An idea with an answer, an acid test, folded in the briefcase under his arm. He bumped into a fat man at the bar, grunted angrily, and finally reached the street, whistled at the cab that lingered nearby. The car swung up before him, the door springing open automatically. He had one foot on the running board before he saw the trap, saw the tight yellowish face and the glittering eyes inside the cab. Suddenly there was an explosion of bright purple brilliance, and he was screaming twisting and screaming and reeling backward onto the sidewalk, doubled over with the agonizing fire that burned through his side and down one leg, forcing scream after scream from his throat as he blindly staggered to the wall of the building, pounded it with his fists for relief from the searing pain. And then he was on his side on the sidewalk, sobbing, blubbering incoherently to the uniformed policeman who was dragging him gently to his feet seeing through burning eyes the group of curious people gathering around. Suddenly realization dawned through the pain, and he let out a cry of anger and bolted for the curb, knocking the policeman aside, his eyes wild, searching the receding stream of traffic for the cab. A picture of the occupant burned indelibly into his mind, a face he had seen, recognized. The cab was gone, he knew, gone like a breath of wind. The briefcase was also gone. He gave the address of the Essex University Hospital to the cabbie and settled back in the seat, gripping the handguard tightly to fight down the returning pain in his side and leg. His mind was whirling, fighting in a welter of confusion, trying to find some avenue of approach, some way to make sense of the mess. The face in the cab recurred again and again before his eyes, the gaunt, putty-colored cheeks, the sharp, glittering eyes. His acquaintance with Frank Mariel had been brief and unpleasant in the past, but that was a face he would never forget. But how could Mariel have known where he would be, and when? There was precision in that attack, far too smooth precision ever to have been left to chance, or even to independent planning. His mind skirted the obvious a dozen times, and each time rejected it angrily. Finally, he knew he could no longer reject the thought, the only possible answer. Mariel had known where he would be, and at what time. Therefore, someone must have told him. He stiffened in the seat, the pain momentarily forgotten. Only one person could have told Mariel. 
Only one person knew where the file was and where it would be after he left the restaurant. He felt cold bitterness creep down his spine. She had known and sat there making eyes at him and telling him how wonderful he was, how she was with him no matter what happened. And she'd already sold him down the river. He shook his head angrily, trying to keep his thoughts on a rational plane. Why? Why had she strung him along? Why had she even started to help him? And why, above all, turn against her own father? The hospital driveway crunched under the cab, and he hopped out, wincing with every step, and walked into a phone booth off the lobby. He gave a name, and in a moment heard the PA system echoing it. Dr. Prax! Calling Dr. Prax! In a moment he heard a receiver click off, and a familiar voice said, Prax speaking! Prax, this is Shandor. Got a minute? The voice was cordial. Dozens of them. Where are you? I'll be up in your quarters. Shandor slammed down the receiver and started for the elevator to the resident physician's wing. He let himself in by a key and settled down in the darkened room to wait an eternity before a tall, gaunt man walked in, snapped on a light, and loosened the white jacket at his neck. He was a young man, no more than thirty, with a tired, sober face and jet-black hair falling over his forehead. His eyes lighted as he saw Shandor, and he grinned. You look like you've been through the mill. What happened? Shandor stripped off his clothes, exposing the angry red of the seared skin. The tall man whistled softly, the smile fading. Carefully, he examined the burned area, his fingers gentle on the tender surface. Then he turned troubled eyes to Shandor. You've been messing around with dirty guys, Tom. Nobody but a real dog would turn a scalder on a man. He went to a cupboard, returned with a jar of salve and bandages. Is it serious? Shandor's face was deathly white. I've been fighting shock with thiamine for the last hour, but I don't think I can hold out much longer. Prex shrugged. You didn't get enough to do any permanent damage, if that's what you mean. Just fried the pain receptors in your skin to a crisp is all. A little dose is so painful you can't do anything but holler for a while, but it won't hurt you permanently unless you get it all over you. Enough can kill you. He dressed the burned areas carefully, then bared Shandor's arm and used a pressure syringe for a moment. Who's using one of those things? Shandor was silent for a moment. Then he said, Look, Prex, I need some help, badly. His eyes looked up in dull anger. I'm going to see a man tonight, and I want him to talk. Hard and fast. I don't care right now if he nearly dies from pain, but I want him to talk. I need somebody along who knows how to make things painful. Prex scowled and pointed to the burn. This the man? That's the man. Prex put away the salve. I suppose I'll help you then. Is this official or grudge? A little of both. Look, Prex, I know this is a big favor to ask, but it's on the level. Believe me, it's square. Nothing shady about it. The method may not be legal, but the means are justified. I can't tell you what's up, but I'm asking you to trust me. Prex grinned. You say it's all right? It's all right. When? Shandor glanced at his watch. About three o'clock this morning, I think. We can take your car. They talked for a while, and a call took the doctor away. Shandor slept a little, then made some black coffee. Shortly before three, the two men left the hospital by the physician's entrance and Prex's little beat-up Dartmouth slid smoothly into the desultory traffic for the suburbs. The apartment was small and neatly furnished. 
Shandor and the doctor had been admitted by a sleepy doorman who had been jolted to sudden attention by Tom's PIB card, and after five minutes pounding on the apartment door, a sleepy-eyed man opened the door a crack. Say, what's the idea pounding on a man's door at this time of night? Haven't you- <laughs> Shandor gave the door a shove with his shoulder, driving it open into the room. Shut up, he said bluntly. He turned so the light struck his face, and the little man's jaw dropped in astonishment. Shandor, he whispered. Frank Mario looked like a weasel, sallow, sunken-cheeked, with a yellowish cast to his skin that contrasted unpleasantly with the coal-black hair. That's right, said Shandor. We've come for a little talk. Meet the doctor. Mario's eyes shifted momentarily to Prex's stony face, then back to Shandor, ghosts of fear creeping across his face. What do you want? I've come for the files. The little man scowled. You've come to the wrong man. I don't have any files. Prex carefully took a small black case from his pocket, unsnapped a hinge, and a small shiny instrument fell out in his hand. The files, said Shandor. Who has them? I, I don't know. Shandor smashed a fist into the man's face viciously, knocking him reeling to the floor. You tried to kill me tonight, he snarled. You should have done it upright. You should stick to magazine editing and keep your nose out of dirty games, Mariel. Who has the files? Mariel picked himself up, trembling, met Shandor's fist and sprawled again, a trickle of blood appearing at his mouth. Harry Dartmouth has the files, he groaned. They're probably in Chicago now. What do you know about Harry Dartmouth? Mariel gained a chair this time before Shandor hit him. I've only met him a couple of times. He's the president of Dartmouth Baring Corporation, and he's my boss. Dartmouth Baring publishes Fighting World. I do what he tells me. Shandor's eyes flared. Including murder, is that right? Mariel's eyes were sullen. Come on, talk. Why did Dartmouth want Ingersoll's personal files? The man just stared sullenly at the floor. Prex pressed a stud on the side of the shiny instrument, and a purple flash caught Mariel's little finger. Mariel jerked and squealed with pain. Speak up, said Shandor. I didn't hear you. Probably about the bonds, Mariel whimpered. His face was ashen, and he eyed Prex with undisguised pleading. Look, tell him to put that thing away. Shandor grinned without humor. You don't like scalders, eh? Get a big enough dose and you're dead, Mariel. But I guess you know that, don't you? Think about it, but don't think too long. What about the bonds? Ingersoll has been trying to get Dartmouth Baring Corporation on legal grounds for years. Something about the government bonds they held, bought during the China Wars. You know, surplus profits. Dartmouth Baring could beat the taxes by buying bonds. Harry Dartmouth thought Ingersoll's files had some legal dope against them. He was afraid you'd try to make trouble for the company. So he hired his little pixie, eh? Seems to me you'd have enough on your hands editing that rag. Mariel shot him an injured look. Fighting World has the second largest magazine circulation in the country. It's a good magazine. It's a warmonger propaganda rag, snapped Shandor. He glared at the little man. What's your relation to Ingersoll? They hated his guts. He was carrying his lily-livered pacifism right to the White House, and I couldn't see it. So I fought him every inch of the way. I'll fight what he stands for now he's dead. Shandor's eyes narrowed. That was a mistake, Mariel. 
You weren't supposed to know he is dead. He walked over to the little man, whose face was a shade whiter yet. Funny, said Shandor quietly. You say you hated him, but I didn't get that impression at all. Mariel's eyes opened wide. What do you mean? Everything you wrote for PIB seems to have treated him kindly. A shadow of deep concern crossed Mariel's face, as though for the first time he found himself in deep water. P.I.B. told me what to write, and I wrote it. You know how they work. Yes, I know how they work. I also know that most of your writing, while you were doing public information board work, was never ordered by P.I.B. Ever hear of Ben Chamberlain, Mariel? Or Frank Eberhardt? Or John Harding? Ever hear of them, Mariel? Shandor's voice cut sharply through the room. Ben Chamberlain wrote for every large circulation magazine in the country after the Chinese War. Frank Eberhardt was the man behind Associated Press during those years. John Harding was the silent publisher of three newspapers in Washington, two in New York, and one in Chicago. Ever hear of those men, Mariel? No, no. You know damned well you've heard of them, because those men were all you. Every single one of them. Shandor was standing close to him now, and Mariel sat like he had seen a ghost, his lower lip quivering, forehead wet. No, no, you're wrong. No, no, I'm right, mocked Shandor. I've been in the newspaper racket for a long time, Mariel. I've got friends in PIB. Real friends, not the shameless crowd you're acquainted with that'll take you for your last nickel and then leave you to starve. Never mind how I found out. You hated Ingersoll so much, you handed him bouquets all the time. How about it, Mariel? All that writing. You couldn't praise him enough. Boosting him beating the drum for him and his policies, every trick and gimmick known in the propaganda game to give him a boost, make him the people's darling. How about it? Mario was shaking his head, his little eyes nearly popping with fright. It wasn't him, he choked. Ingersoll had nothing to do with it. It was Dartmouth Baring. They bought me into the spots, got me the newspapers, supported me. Dartmouth Baring ran the whole works, and they told me what to write. Garbage! Dartmouth Baring, the biggest munitions people in America, and I'm supposed to believe that they told you to go to bat for the country's strongest pacifist? What kind of sap do you take me for? It's true. Ingersoll had nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. Mariel's voice was almost pleading. Look, I don't know what Dartmouth Baring had in mind. Who was I to ask questions? You don't realize their power, Shandor. Those bonds I spoke of, they hold millions of dollars worth of bonds. They hold enough bonds to topple the economy of the nation. They've got bonds in the names of 10,000 subsidiary companies. They've been telling Federal Economics Commission what to do for the past 10 years. And they're getting us into this war, Shandor, lock, stock, and barrel. They pushed for everything they could get, and they had the money, the power, the men to do whatever they wanted. You couldn't fight them because they had everything sewed up so tight nobody could approach them. Shandor's mind was racing, the missing pieces beginning suddenly to come out of the haze. The incredible, twisted idea broke through again, staggering him, driving through his mind like icy steel. Listen, Mariel, I swear I'll kill you if you lie to me, so you'd better tell the truth. Who put you on my trail? Who told you Ingersoll was dead and that I was scraping up Ingersoll's past? The little man twisted his hands, almost in tears. Harry Dartmouth told me. 
And who told Harry Dartmouth? Mariel's voice was so weak it could hardly be heard. The girl, he said. Shandor felt the chill deepen. And where are the files now? Dartmouth has them. Probably in Chicago. I expressed them. The girl didn't dare send them direct for fear you would check or that she was being watched. I was supposed to pick them up from you and see to it that you didn't remember. Shandor clenched his fist. Where are Dartmouth's plants located? The main plants are in Chicago and Newark. They've got a smaller one in Nevada. And what do they make? In peacetime, cars. In wartime, they make tanks and shells. And the records, inventories, shipping orders and files? Where do they keep them? I... I don't know. You aren't thinking of... Never mind what I'm thinking of. Just answer up. Where are they? All the administration offices are in Chicago. But they'd kill you, Shandor. You wouldn't stand a chance. They can't be fought, I tell you. Shandor nodded to Prex and started for the door. Keep him here until dawn, then go on home, and forget what you heard. If anything happens, give me a ring at my home. He glared at Mariel. Don't worry about me, bud. They won't be doing anything to me when I get through with them. They just won't be doing anything at all. Next week, the trap is properly set, and we get another story from the Cold War era with what I thought was an interesting twist and a potentially terrible Russian accent. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayor Zine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.